I, I was, I'm, I'm working into, we're still doing the temple thing. We've been on, you know, the, the temple for a few weeks and all the different things and the way the Lord set it up and stuff. But uh, it has been on my heart because of some of the stuff that's been going on recently. Uh, that it, it's just like it's right out of the book of Revelation. And it's hard to ignore. So I'm going to weave some of that stuff through. We'll sort of uh, take a little bit of the tabernacle. We'll take a little bit of the Shavuot thing. And we'll end up doing a little bit of the dancing on the streets of gold thing. Um, so be thinking of how you think the end times, what, what, what do you think is going to happen? And uh, we'll do some backgroundy sort of thing and then um, next week we'll do something you know who knows next week's a long time away <clears throat> um, we'll do some in time stuff and we'll do oh do you guys know Clarence Larkin unbelievable you are a bunch of pagans Clarence Larkin was born in 1850 and died in 1924. And he was a pastor of some repute. And he's known for, he didn't write as much as he drew. He would draw pictures of all of his lessons and he's brilliant at it. And this is one of his pictures um, for the end time sort of things. And I've been talking uh, for a while about, you know, how I believe some of the patriarchs already knew. And the, you know, the wording in scripture is they saw in the distance of time. And remember, the Lord took Moshe up to the mountain, and he wanted to go into the promised land. And he said, no, but he showed him everything. And the stuff that he showed him was much further than he could physically see. And I think he showed him the things in the distance of time. And you saw a lot of the patriarchs who certainly act like that. They seemed to know that they were acting out prophecy or, um, you know, they, they just had a sense of what's going on. And Clarence here, um, you probably can't read it. The guy over on the left says the Old Testament Valley. So that's where we live just about in every Bible study we do, off in the Old Testament Valley. And the patriarch is looking forward. And over here, we have the New Jerusalem coming down. So it's all these things. You've got the valley of the church. And this is exactly what Moses saw. He saw the Messiah crucified from where he was on Pisgah. And, you know, there's the valley of the church. And he didn't really see that. And then he sees things like the Antichrist and the Son of God coming down and um, the kingdom age and the, you know, the end times and all this stuff. And there's a lot of stuff he doesn't see. And it's, it's typical Larkin. He does such an amazing job with his drawings because that's exactly how it is. These, these patriarchs saw in the distance, they saw the crucifixion and they saw the antichrist and they saw the new Jerusalem, but they didn't see all the, you know, the little stuff, you know, little stuff, the church age and, you know, things like that. They saw the big picture. And I just thought it was a, it was an excellent picture considering what we've been talking about and what we're going to be talking about.
So anyway, today is Shabbat, or you may know it as Pentecost. It's, uh, it's called Shabbat from the word for weeks, the Hebrew word for weeks. Um, see, I carry my IT department with me. <laughs> so Shabbat, thank you, is it's called the Feast of Weeks because after Passover, you count the Omer for 45 or 49 days, seven sevens. So it's the morrow after seven sevens. So it's the 50th day. So 50 is Pente in Greek. So, of course, it became Pentecost to all the non-Hebrew speakers. But it's, it, it coincides with the harvest and, you know, there are, there are things and events that occurred on this time. But the idea behind Shavuot is, um, well, let's just look into it and see. The first thing you'll notice, it's 50 days. So 50 in, in uh, Hebrew, or it, the idea of 50 is the Jubilee. And the Jubilee year was the 50th year, the year after the seventh, seventh year. And the Jubilee year was when everything returned to its original owner. So the first thing that should flash out when you see Pentecost or when you see Shavuot or when you get this idea of 50 is that's the Jubilee. That's when things return to their original owner. And if you think of who we are and who our original owner is, you know, the entire purpose of scripture has been to get us back to the garden, back to the place where we fellowshiped with God. Adam and Eve uh, lost that spot and everything from Genesis chapter three to the end of Revelation 22 is in effect, God bringing us back to that place where we had fellowship, where we lived in the house of God again. And that's this idea of Jubilee is it returns back to the original owner. So Shavuot, you know, right off the bat should give you that sort of overarching picture that it's intended it's a tied in in some way for uh, to, to getting us back to where we started. So uh, I just want to read you a couple of verses of things that happened on Shavuot. And this, of course, is from the first one. It's in Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8. And the he they're talking about is Moshe. It says, and he took the book of the covenant and he read in the audience of the people and they said, all that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. And Moshe took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So if you remember what had happened is the people were getting a little uh, itchy with God. Moshe talked to them. The Lord gave him all of the Torah, really all the instructions and uh, statutes and judgments of the Lord. He went to the people before he went on the mount and told them. And this was their response. We will, we will do and obey all that the Lord has said. And of course, you can sort of hear the Lord chuckling in the background because he knew that wasn't going to happen. But that's the context. So he took the blood, it says, and he sprinkled it on the people. And the blood that he's talking about was before he did this, they had a, um, an offering, of course. So they took half the blood and they sprinkled it on the, um, the things of the covenant, the important stuff. And then they took the other half of the blood and Moshe sprinkled it on the people. 
So that's the blood he's talking about. But of course, the blood is the picture, you know, of the Lord, right? Of, of Yeshua, of Jesus. And he was, he shed his blood for us. And this is the same purpose. You're seeing this picture of 50, the Jubilee, the returning to the time of the owner. Then you're seeing uh, this idea of blood again. Typically during this uh, Feast of Shavuot, the book of Ruth is read. And if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, she's a Gentile bride. And she's a Gentile bride. She marries Boaz, the Jewish kinsman redeemer. And through their union, new life is produced, including uh, the Messiah, including David. He's, he's, she's the mother in the Hebrew sense of David and Yeshua. And then through this union and this new life, Naomi, the Jew, is saved. So the picture of the Gentile marrying the Jewish redeemer, saving, you know, creating new life and saving um, the Jew is pretty much the synopsis of the book of Ruth. Uh, so in Ruth, this is the famous verse from the book of Ruth, Ruth 1.16, Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi, for whoever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And you need to put that in context. Ruth is the Gentile and she's saying this to the Jew, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And of course, if you've been at this Bible study for any length of time, you will uh, remember that we're not trying to bring the Jews into Christianity as much as we're moving towards the Jewish Messiah because, uh, bless you, that's, that's the deal. So a few years later on this same day in Jerusalem, as we read in Acts chapter 2, it says, And when the day of Shavuot was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as if a rushing mighty wind, like we have here, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And it appeared to them as cloven tongue, tongues like as fire. And it sat upon each of them. They're all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then down the road a little bit here in verse 22, it says, you men of Israel, and that that's something to consider, He's talking to the men of Israel. There were no quote-unquote Christians or Gentiles present at the time. These were all men of Israel. So you men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man approved of Jehovah among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which Yahweh did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of Yahweh, have have taken him by wicked hands and crucified and slain, whom Yahweh hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. And again, think of that picture we just saw, of, you know, one of the patriarchs looking off in the distance of time. He already knew a lot of this stuff. But this, this, this is, this is Shavuot. These are the things that happen. The, the, the word, the Torah was given to the people of Israel. So in effect, it created the nation of Israel and they went, got the word of God. They received the word of God from God on the mountain. That's what Shavuot celebrates. 
some years later, we got the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit descends on the men of Israel, on Peter and his compadres, and all the people that were in Jerusalem, all the holy men of Israel that were in Jerusalem to celebrate Shavuot, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And you know the story, they all speak, well, they weren't speaking in tongues, but they were understanding all the different dialects of the Ethiopians and the people from Phoenicia. And, you know, these were Jews from all over the world who all spoke different languages, and all of a sudden they could be understood. And it was a miracle, but it was the Holy Spirit. So Shavuot represents the beginning of the nation of Israel, and it re represents later the beginning of the church. Those are the things that happened on these days. Um, and again, this is basically for the Jewish people. Uh, so David, like Moshe, Abraham, Yosef, Daniel, all these other guys could see in this in this distance of time, and it's just kind of a quaint uh, way the Hebrews have of saying that. It's they, the Spirit was speaking to them, and they could see things that were uh, that they wouldn't have any way to know. They would expect things that they wouldn't have any way to know. And we know we've talked about this before. Hebrew is cyclical. Everything happens, you know, again and again. Passover was a sacrificial lamb, same day. Yeshua sacrificed on the lamb. First to first, you know, the, he, he rose on the feast of first, of, the feast of first fruits. I mean, all these things repeat over and over again. And those were repetitions of things that had happened to Abraham 430 years later. And so, so if you look at scripture, you'll see this, and it's not really a loose understanding. It's, you can mark it every 430 years. These things seem to repeat. And, that's, you know, this, the Hebrew is cyclical. It's not circular, it's cyclical. It repeats in different times and different people. So you get the same message over and over and over again. And that's why when you read, you know, in English, it'll say the paths of righteousness. That's not really what it says. It says the cycles of righteousness. So all of these things that happened on Shavuot are you could term a new beginning. The nation of Israel is formed as a new beginning. The church was formed as a new beginning. Um, and for that reason, there's a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are many people who see the next new beginning happening at Shavuot. They see possibly the rapture, the re return of the Messiah, or something tied into the end times happening that would fit into this whole idea of new beginning. Um, and if you're into reading unusual stuff, the book of Jubilees, which is not in our scripture, but probably should be, uh, it, it claims that today was the day that Judah was born to Jacob. And Judah, of course, is the father of the Jews. It's also the day that the Lord met with Jacob, later to be Israel, to confirm his covenant that he made with him, that Jacob would be uh, a mighty nation and great nation and all the things that went along with that. Jacob being Israel, Israel meaning those that are under the authority of God, which you could make the case for hopefully everyone in this room is under the authority of God. So there are people that see in this repetition that happens on this day that, um, is it up again? I don't know, that this could potentially be another day of new beginning. So we've been talking about the uh, tabernacle and all the various parts and pieces and whatnot of the tabernacle. 
And today would have been the day that we covered the bronze laver because we've been looking at it exactly as it was laid out by the Lord. Not, you know, we, if, if Dan and I were building it, we'd start at one end and work to the other. You start at the bottom and you work to the top. But the Lord isn't doing that. He's expressing these things a piece at a time and not necessarily in the order we would pick or in the order that it would be required to build it. So today would have been the day, uh, or it still is, the day of the bronze laver. And we had been inside the tabernacle. We talked about the Holy of Holies, the, you know, the mercy seat, the ark, the veils, the table of showbread, you know, the word of God illuminated by the menorah, the light onto your path, all these things, uh, all the sockets and rings and all the different colors and metals and, you know, and everything has meaning. And we've talked about all that stuff. So it would have been logical that we just move over to the table of incense. But that's not where he takes us. He takes us outside the tabernacle into the courtyard to talk about the bronze laver. And it seems a little odd because he hasn't finished talking about everything in the temple yet. But if you think about it, you know, bronze, of course, is the metal of judgment. And the laver uh, was the place where the sacrifices were made. And if you read the scripture, you know, like everything else, almost, it doesn't give you the size of the menorah, but almost everything else, it tells you exactly how big they are. And this is no different. This thing is uh, four and a half feet tall, and it's seven and a half feet square. So it's a pretty big piece of equipment. And it has grates in it, and then there's trays and, you know, all sorts of implements and all that stuff. And the idea is this is where the sacrifices are actually burned. And it's, it's interesting when you, when you start to think it through why he shifted from all the things that were in the tabernacle to go outside the tabernacle and do this bronze laver. And it's uh, one of the songs Nedra was singing today, you know, dancing on the streets of gold and all that stuff. You know, I want to get into the Holy of Holies, whatever the song is. And she said or sang, I went past the bronze laver or something, whatever she called it and into the table of incense and took the coals and cleansed my lips. Well, that's exactly how this works. Everything in the tabernacle, of course, has meaning, and the order has meaning. And that's why the Lord told Moshe to do it exactly like I tell you to do it, because you can't change any of these things. They have meanings. So the, the meaning is you have a table of incense that's right out in front of the veil, through which is the Holy of Holies with the mercy seat and the ark. So it, what you do or <laughs> what the uh, uh, priests would do is they would send up the incense, right? They would burn the incense and the smoke of the incense would rise. And that would represent the prayers of the people and, you know, and, and all of that sort of thing. Well, where do you get the coals for the incense? It comes from the bronze laver outside. They don't, the, the, the table of incense doesn't have its own fire source, as it were. The fire, the coals are brought from the bronze laver. Well, what's the bronze laver? That's where you go to make your sacrifice. So before you can enter the tabernacle, you would have to make a sacrifice. So you make the sacrifice and then you take the coals, which are now somewhat smelling of the sacrifice and those go into the tabernacle onto the 
table of incense and your incense is burned with those coals. So the sacrifice, uh, you know, the, the, the scent of the sacrifice is mixed with the scent of the incense and that's what rises up. And the idea is that the Lord who is behind the veil, he's, you know, between the wings of the cherubim, he's on top of the ark on the mercy seat, he can tell. He smells, because that's what it says. It's a sweet savor unto the Lord. He can tell the offering. He can tell the incense, and it's colored by the scent of the um, sacrifice. And if you didn't do that, if you just brought in your own, for instance, hot coals and made your own incense sacrifice, the smell would be different. And the savor wouldn't be the same. And the Lord would know that. And I mean, obviously the Lord would know it anyway. But, you know, you think back to uh, Nadav and Avahu, the sons of Aaron, right? And these were the guys that the Lord smote because they brought a strange fire into the tabernacle. So what apparently what they did is they didn't make the sacrifice. And if you don't make the sacrifice, then you have no right to go to the altar of incense and lift your prayers up that way. So they apparently brought coals in and made an offering to the Lord that way, skipping the whole sacrifice thing. You, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't enter the presence of the Lord without first cleansing yourself, making the sacrifice, and then the next thing will be the water and the labor that you physically, you know, wash up and clean yourself with. So there's this idea of you can't appear before the Lord unless you have made the appropriate sacrifice and, and cleaned yourself up, and they apparently didn't do that. So when you, when you think about well, why did he just jump outside to do it, all of a sudden it makes more sense because that's the order it has to come. You, you, you enter the courtyard, the first thing you see is this huge bronze laver for the sacrifices. And you have to walk past it to get to the tabernacle. You can't, uh, you can't miss it. You know, and to side skirt it is not what the Lord would have you to do. And as I consider um, some of the things Christianity and Judaism today are all about, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's this same strange fire. It's, they have omitted the sacrifice part. They have omitted the getting clean part, the admitting, you know, the, the spiritual cleanliness that's required for the sacrifice, and then the physical cleanliness that would be required by the, you know, the next piece of equipment, the, the water labor, where you would wash and, and all that stuff. And that's not going to happen. It's, it's, it's no different today than it was back then. If you don't approach the Lord the proper way, don't expect that he's going to receive you. He didn't receive the sons of Aaron when they didn't approach him in the, in, in the right way. And there's absolutely no reason to think he would, he would accept us if we don't approach him in the right way. Uh, when you're reading about this bronze labor down in Exodus 29, verse 18, 
and talking about the sacrifice that's going in this labor. And you shall burn the whole ram upon the altar, and it is a burnt offering unto Yehovah, uh, and it is a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto Yehovah. So this word whole is the word coal, and I think we've got that up there. You can see uh, it's just a koflamid, K-L, it's the word coal, and it means whole or complete, uh, you know, the entire deal. And from that, <clears throat> you get this word kalal, which is the actual word that was used here. Uh, lama, it's kaf lamed lamed. And you can see it, you know, looks the same. And if you remember about Hebrew, every letter is a picture. So words with the same letters have the same pictures and therefore have to have a similar idea. It's also the root of the word for bride, which is kalal. So it's kaf lamed hey. So this thought about, and this goes all through the uh, scripture actually, but it's easier to see in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. This idea of the bride is complete. She's, she's the one who makes it whole. Because remember from Genesis 1.1, the very first word, or she, the, the Lord is building a house that his son, his family would live in. The son has children, which requires a wife. We are the bride of Christ, as you know, they tell us all the time. So if you want to be the bride of the son of the Messiah, you have to live in his house, and that's the complete picture. So this picture is written at the bronze laver. Again, this is, you know, the 12th time you see that in the scripture. But it's the same idea of the bride complete the sacrifice, the offering, you know, all of that stuff. Okay. So when we think about uh, the offering, sometimes we think about the poor animal, you know, an innocent animal is, yeah. you know, is killed. I mean, it's shedding his blood. And obviously we know that that's a picture. Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> Sadie doesn't want to be an offering. <laughs> so, Sadie, so the Lord is not excited about the offering of the innocent animal. That's not the deal. But he is excited that someone has come to make atonement, to make amends, to make that offering. And that's why it's a sweet savor in his nostrils because not, you know, not because of the animal, but because of the heart of the person who did it. Okay. So we're going to talk some more about all that stuff. Um, I have Larkin's picture up here again, but I think we've kind of already talked about this a little bit. Uh, it's interesting that Larkin is one of these, one of the few people from that time who recognized that scripture said that Israel had to come back as a nation. And of course, this was in the late 1900s, early 1900s. There was not even any talk or hope of uh, Israel ever becoming a nation again. And so in all of his drawings, when he's seeing the future and seeing all of these things, there's often a big question mark because he knows Israel has to come back before the end can happen, but he can't see a way for that to happen because where he lived and when he lived, that wasn't an option. There was no, it was, it just, you wouldn't ever think that, but he knew it had to happen. 
And it's interesting that he's one of the few guys that was, you know, would step out on the limb and say, no, no, this has to happen because scripture said it has to happen. And that's, you know, that he has some crazy drawings and you look at those, you know, and he was much better with drawing the picture than he was with writing the word. And um, so anyway, he's, he's, he didn't start out that way. He started out sort of as a denominational guy. And if you're a denominational guy, you don't really believe in a pre-trib. You kind of believe in a amillennial sort of, you know, everything kind of goes and we're sort of just generically kind of in the book of Revelation, which, you know, they don't really believe anyway. And, you know, all that stuff. And he came to understand or he came to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture long before uh, it was I shouldn't say popular. It's still not popular. But uh, anyway, it appears in his drawings. And it's just interesting the path he took to get there was only looking at Scripture and what does Scripture say. And he had to overcome the beliefs that he was taught and the things that he uh, knew as a young man to come to this place of there has to be a nation Israel, will have to be raptured before the book of Revelation, you know, and a bunch of other things that are, we don't really think too much about now, but at the time it was, it was a pretty interesting deal. So I'm guessing that in this room, most people would, if they even think about it, would call themselves pre-tribulation, you know, we're <laughs> hopeful, where the, where the church is raptured out of this place before the tribulation occurs. No, you don't think so? Okay. And then there's mid-trib, that it would go in the middle of the tribulation. Then there's post-trib, that it would go at the end of the tribulation. Then there's amillennialism that is, you know, and that's what most denominations believe, Catholics and Methodists and Lutherans, and which is why only about 25% of the people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Because if you're a denominationalist, like Larkin was when he started, you wouldn't believe that. You wouldn't, you'd never even think about it. It wouldn't have been taught to you. You would have no sense to even look for it. Um, but most Calvary type or open Bible types tend to lean towards uh, pre-trib or maybe mid-trib or something. And there are a number of reasons why. Um, there are a bunch of verses in the New Testament that seem to say that we're not appointed to wrath and a number of things like that. And if you look at those verses and put them in context, they're not really talking about, we're not appointed unto that wrath. <laughs> you know, they're talking about something else. And you'd have to look at the context of the verse. But it's to, you know, read up from where that says it and find out what they're talking about, get the context of what they're saying. And you will see that most of those New Testament verses that they cite for a pre-tribulation rapture um, you could make a, a good case that that's maybe not true, but um, I have some other things. So before we get too far, just somebody tell me, tell me how you see all the things at the end playing out. I mean, do you see what, what order are they like? I've got, uh, uh, well, do you see a rapture? Do you even believe in a rapture? Okay, but we've got Larkin's picture. So over here at the end is the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Okay, we know that's there because the Bible says that's there. 
and then you read the book of Revelation and there's, you know, doesn't seem like it's going to be fun. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on. And in, once uh, Yeshua, Jesus came, the Bible tends to refer to everything after that as the end times. So everything that happened from, say, the crucifixion of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, tell, his, uh, t tell this, tell the New Jerusalem coming down, scripturally is covered sort of with a broad brush of end times. So when we talk about end times, I'm guessing we're talking about like now, you know, the act right there before all that stuff happens. The Bible's kind of lumps that all into one sort of, you know, after the Messiah was raised, then that's the last dispensation. I hate that word before the end. So that's all sort of the end. So it changes sometimes some of the things we see, but we all, all agree with the whole New Jerusalem thing, right? How do we get to that from where we are today is the question. And there are, does anybody want to throttle a timeline there? What do you? Okay, there's a thousand year reign. We know it has to go in there somewhere. What else do we expect happening? Is the book of Revelation this monolithic book and we read it and it's, you know, we kind of get the sense that, well, these happen and then those happen and then those happen and then these guys get involved and that happens. And, it, you know, we can read it as though this occurs over the seven years of Daniel, the, you know, the last seven years. Is that the book of Revelation? And then we've been talking for a long time about the end of Malachi, where it says the hearts of fathers uh, are drawn to the hearts of children, hearts of children are drawn to the hearts of fathers. Uh, Ezekiel 37, where he takes the two sticks of uh, Judah and Israel and brings them together as one. Paul, when he's talking about the two olive trees, you know, the natural and the wild, and you take the wild olive branches and you graft them into the natural. Um, Hosea, where he's talking about his children um, scattered, not my children. I don't know, three horrible names. And then well, because it was, it was a message, right, to his people. I'm going to scatter you. Oh, I'm not going to have mercy on you. And you are not my people. And then by the time you get to the end of chapter two, he says, in the place I said your people are not my people, I will call you my people. So there's this idea of, you know, him bringing together. And I mean, this idea goes through scripture, both old and new. You get this sense that uh, there's, there's a time towards the end when the Jews and the Christians, if you want to put it that way, when Judah and Israel are going to have to become one or the last words of the book of Malachi is if that doesn't happen, then I will curse the world. And we know that doesn't happen because this picture of the new Jerusalem comes down. So for that to happen, that means the hearts of children return to the fathers, hearts of the fathers return to the children. The two sticks of, uh, Judah and Israel are brought together. Hosea, you know, all these things have to happen. There has to be some movement towards uh, people like us embracing the, the Tanakh and the Jews embracing the Messiah. Those things have to come together for the end to happen. So, you know, have you, have you guys, because I haven't given you a lot of help on this, have you guys thought where that all fits in the end times? You know, Yes. I know I haven't not really thought through the timeline before, 
Right. That's another thing. Right. Okay. That's another one of those steps. Well, no, I don't. But I do agree with the whole... The, I, I know, I know. But that's standard denominational stuff. The restrainer is not the Holy Spirit. But we, we can get... To, we can... No, we can... That's a whole other deal. Just... That's the way we're taught. And that's... I don't, you know, we, we can talk about that. It doesn't matter, but the, okay, that's fine. That, yeah, it's in Thessalonians. There's this idea in most of Christendom that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer and he's holding back evil, like the little Dutch boy with his finger in the ark. And then, then he's going to move and evil will just break loose in the book of Revelation. And that's how we get all that stuff. And then that opens up the book of Revelation, which opens up to this end of, you know, and it's seven year time period and three and a half years, this is going to happen. The Antichrist will be revealed. And then the temple has to be built. And, you know, there's all these things that happen. And we tend to picture that as some of the steps, you know, that's the big, one of the big steps is the Antichrist has to be revealed. And I didn't even put that on here. Um, so you didn't mention the second coming, right? The Lord has to come back the second time. Well, that, yeah, that's sort of covered on that. Um, the thousand year reign we talked about. And, okay, so, oh, and Armageddon. Who's talking about Armageddon here? Right. So there are, there are some things that anybody from any religion or any Christian religion, any denomination, can cut and paste and there are certain steps that we we would all agree with has to happen um you know the second coming the book of revelation the thousand years the new jerusalem armageddon you know stuff like that hmm? peace the peace accord oh yeah there's peace and safety they say they'll be saying peace and safety and that's when everything's going to blow up in your face yeah there's you know there's a million little things but I just wanted to, I want to suggest this to you, and you can think about this on your own time. The book of Revelation has really three parts to it. The first part is chapter one through chapter three, which is all about the church, right? Those are the seven churches, and that is uh, the church age. That, that's in that valley right up there that we saw. That's, and so that covers a lot of ground. Those seven churches cover from the resurrection to the end. So, and, you know, and I'm sure you've all studied that, the, you know, the church of Philadelphia is probably us and all these different churches are different, different things in different times. And it just sort of covers the whole church age. So revelation one through three actually covers about 2000 years of history. And in that the church is mentioned 16 times. Then we start chapter four and we go through chapter 4 through chapter 18. And that's what we typically think of as the book of Revelation. That's all of the stuff and the bowls and the wrath and the, all the things that are going to happen. And we, most people probably think of that as that seven-year period Daniel talks about. 
And a lot of us or a lot of people would think of the first three and a half years as being good, you know, being easy. Then the Antichrist or the so-called Antichrist is revealed in the midst of those seven years, it says. And from that point, the last three and a half years are bad. So those are kind of all the things that we can read about between chapter four and chapter uh, 18. And then 19 through 22 are the part about the new Jerusalem. And it's, it's it, it, the first word in chapter 19 is metatauta. And that's that Greek word that, you know, in, in the eighties, we all used to know, um, it just means after these things. So you've got one through three, which is the whole church age, which is about, you know, 2000 years. Then you've got four through 18, which is all of the stuff that's going to happen. And then chapter 19 is after these things. And that 19 through 22 describes basically this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So in, in that somewhere, you have to fit everything you know or think you know about the end times. And that would include uh, the second coming of the Messiah. That would include the thousand year reign. That would include everything we've talked about here from Malachi and Hosea and, and uh, Ezekiel and you know all the other things we've talked about. It would include Armageddon, and we 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 read in Armageddon that uh, five sixths of the Edomites will be killed. But we've read elsewhere where one sixth of them have already converted to following the God of Abraham anyway. So those people were saved. I mean, all the things uh, that that we think of the end time will include the rapture if you're rapture oriented. Um, all of those things happen during the book of Revelation. So it's not this, you know, this happens and that happens and this happens. It's not, it's, it doesn't happen like we read it. And that's pretty common with scripture. You know, we can read two sentences, but it might be hundreds of years apart. And the book of Revelation is no different. It covers, well, it covers at minimum 3,000 years because it's covered the 2,000 years of church history and it will have to include the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. So at minimum right now, we are looking at a 3,000-year book of Revelation. So sometimes just knowing that changes our outlook a little bit. So, and, and there's a million finer points we can get into about, you know, who's the restrainer and what does he do and why did he take his finger out of the hole and what, you know, what exactly is Armageddon? Because we call it the Battle of Armageddon, and yet a shot's never fired. You know, the Lord intervenes and ends it before there's any battle. Um, and then we have to think about this whole rapture thing. And most denominational people don't believe in a rapture. So they're confronted with things about, uh, you know, there's no rapture in the Bible. Well, that's not actually true. It's uh, the Greek is harpazo, and when it was translated into Latin, it's rapturo. So in English, obviously, it's rapture. It just means a snatching away, a violent snatching away. And that's what we would, you know, when we think of a, as a rapture, we think we're just sitting here and then poof, we're not. We're up there somewhere, you know, and all our clothes are left here and, you know, and it won't be as ugly as that sounds, but we, we'll suddenly be there will be snatched out. There'll be no, in a twinkling of an eye, it says in Thessalonians. You know, how long is a twinkling of an eye? 
they didn't do nanoseconds back then, but it's about that long. It's in no time at all, we'll be there. So that's this idea of the rapture. And you get, um, you know, you can make a pretty good case that that is going to occur, although not all people, in fact, most Christians don't believe that's going to occur. Um, but I think I can make a case that it, that it might occur. Okay, so one of the other things when we're talking about the end times is, uh, I guess we could call them prophecy rules. Um, you have to remember a couple of things. We get so wrapped up, I mean, by we, I mean people in this country, get so wrapped up about what's happening with us and in America, and there are so many things going wrong and so much going on, and, you know, and I can make a case, and I will in the next few weeks, for some of these things that are going on. But we have to balance that with the understanding that all prophecy is about Israel. It's not about the United States. It's not about the world. It's in Israel. It's about those people, which we're hopefully grafted into. But it's there. The time clock is in Jerusalem. It's not here. You know, it's nine hours hence in Jerusalem. So we're getting towards the end of uh, Shavuot. So if we are going to be raptured during Shavuot this year, it's going to have to happen really soon because we're nine hours, or Jerusalem's nine hours ahead of us anyway. So we just need to not think so much about things that are happening in this country. And, you know, things that happen in this country are often a mirror for things that are happening in Israel. But I've been looking at a lot of the things I was going to talk to you about. Um, you know, the micro dot luciferous, you know, vaccine things. And I mean, all this stuff that's going on. And it's not, it's not that big a thing over there yet. Now it may be, you know, and I don't know what's going to happen. And it's easy to make a case for us in this country that, oh, Bill Gates is the Antichrist and he's, he's going to kill it, which he does. He wants to kill the world. I mean, that's, he's said that, you know, since he was a child, that's his whole deal is uh, we got to get the population of the world down. And he says, you know, he plainly says, it, and we'll do this through medicine and vaccines. You know, we've reduced the population of the world. So why everybody's so eager to get one of his vaccines is a mystery to me. But anyway, that's been his goal. He's upfront about it. And I get it. He believes that the world would be far better off if we had a lot less people in it. Well, how can you argue with that? You know, the only thing to argue about is who gets killed, right? So far, it's been Africans and Indians and, you know, so he's not, anyway. But when you look in Israel, some of the things that we see as being super obvious prophetical things are not that obvious over there because that isn't their deal right there yet. I mean, it may be, and we should keep an eye on it. But anyway, all I'm saying is when we look at prophecy, look less at what's happening in your backyard and look more at what's happening in Israel. When you're looking at time, look at, you know, I mean, it's nine hours different. If you're, you know, psyching up for the rapture at, you know, 12, 13 on California time, you've missed it by 10 hours, if that was even right. So we have to look at what the idea of, you know, most of this prophecy is. Um, most of prophecy is for the believer, right? It's, it's written to the Jew or the people who have associated them and grafted in to the Jew, people who recognize that the Bible is the word of God and these things are true. It's not written 
to the world. You know, you, they're not going to be able to understand this stuff. And I'm sure if any of you have tried to go talk to your pagan neighbor about any of this stuff, A, they look at you like an idiot. And B, they want to call somebody and have you committed. Because they don't, they think it's just, I mean, it's crazy talk. No matter how sensible it might be to us, the world is not going to get it because it's not written to them. So we have to be, you know, be, be cautious of how and, and to whom we share some of this stuff. Um, okay, so I want to give you a couple of verses. Um, Amos 3.7. It says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. And this is true. Everything that happens, everything that has ever happened, everything that will happen has already been shared. It's already in the word. He has told his prophets to do these things, to say these things to these people. And for the most part, it's been recorded and the information's out there. So you would think it would be simpler to understand than we make it. But it's partially because we have 4,200 different denominations and religious deals, and they read all the same stuff, but they understand them all differently. And they make a different case for all the things that they hear. But know that the answers are in the Bible. He's already told the prophets. And we had this discussion last week. What's a prophet? Right? A prophet is not a fortune teller. A prophet is somebody who tells the word of the Lord. If it's not in the Bible and he's telling you that, he's not a prophet. The prophets only told what the Lord had him to say. And obviously they were uh, misunderstood for the most part and threatened and mistreated and, you know, and all that stuff. So if you recall from Matthew 13, when the disciples came to Yeshua and said, hey, how come you always talk to the rabble with, with uh, parables? Why don't you just tell them straight up? And if you recall what the Lord said, is they wouldn't understand. He says to some, it's been given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but to others it has not. And so these disciples, had they understood. And why did they understood? It was just some miracle from the Lord. No, they understood the Tanakh. They knew what it said. If they knew the Tanakh, they could see the Lord in this man. They could see that this was the promised Messiah. He met all the criteria. That's the wisdom they had was the truth of the Tanakh. Those people, the rabble who couldn't understand this stuff, they didn't know the Tanakh. They didn't know the word of God. So the Lord may have expressed all of these truths to everyone through the prophets, but if you haven't taken the time to learn what the Lord has said through his prophets, not, not his fortune tellers, not Benny Hinn and the word of faith people and whoever else, but through the actual word of God, then you'll never know. If you learn the word of God, then you see all this stuff happening in the world and it shouldn't freak you out. It should be awesome. He said this is going to happen exactly like it's happening. You know, and that's where a lot of these prophet guys are today or prophecy guys are today is they're seeing all these things. And so many of them are lining up exactly with what you see in scripture and they know scripture and they're looking at these things and they're thinking, 
this is surreal. This might actually be happening. We've been talking about this for 50 years, you know, and when I'm seventies, eighties, whenever it was, it was a real popular thing. And everybody's, Oh yeah, let's go out and do rapture practice and jump up and down. And, you know, and it was sort of a tongue in cheek thing. And we all knew it was coming, but you don't want to actually have to assign a day to that because there's going to be a moment in time at which the Lord says, that's it. That's all there is. I'm taking you guys out or whatever your particular eschological background is. There is a moment in time when that stuff happens. And right now there are a lot of people who are seeing these things happening and it just seems like, wow, this is, this might really be the deal. And we've thought about it for years and never, you know, yeah, it's happening, but you know, and it's going to happen in my lifetime. But, but now all of a sudden when you're confronted with something and I personally don't think this is it, I think this is a preparation for it. And it will, you know, there, this is a test run to see how, how the people respond and the people are folding like a cheap deck of cards. And I suspect in the next year or two, you're going to get the real deal. But all I'm saying is it, it could be close. That day in the future could be a day coming soon to your neighborhood near you. So what does that mean? You know, and if you're in Yeshua, if you're following the God of Abraham, it's a good thing, right? Because whatever happens, however you see it, whether we get it right or wrong, you know, because you, you, you don't get to go based on how much you know, or how right you got it, you get to go because you're following the right guy, right? You're, you're aligned with the Lord. And when whatever he's going to do, he does, then it's good for us. So you've got this group of Christians. Well, the largest group of Christians is totally oblivious. They have no idea what's going on. And you start to talk to them about some of this stuff and they glaze over and say, I got to go. Because they don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. They don't even believe it, that there could be a day in their lifetimes, a moment in time, when the Lord will say, that's it. You're coming home. Or I'm coming down, or however you want to look at it. Because it's going to happen. Exactly. What's your heart? And most of the people you sit next to in a pew, they could care less. They don't even want to know. They don't even want to talk about it because it just makes them nervous. Then you've got the Christians that are just looking into it and diving through every single bit and piece and, and nook and cranny. This is going, oh my God, oh my God, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Oh, what am I going to do? What do you mean? If it's really going to happen, this is the best thing ever. I mean, literally ever. Why are you worried about it? And then there's, you know, people probably like us that are like, all right, I'm down with it. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to investigate it and look, you know, but I know where I'm going. But the point of it would be, what are you going to do? And it's not for you. Nobody cares about you because you're already going. You already belong to the Lord. And so you're sitting here thinking, well, it could be, you know, it could be the end of the year. You know, when the vaccine comes out, it could be two years when all this other stuff happens. Well, it doesn't matter if it's six months or two years, how would you live during that time? 
And the whole point of, you know, we've talked about this a million times, is he came to the children of Israel because they're just awesome people who do everything right. Oh, wait, that was a different book. Okay, he came to the children of Israel to use them to share his message. And he said to them as they were walking through the wilderness, you may recall, do not set foot in the land of the Ammonites or the Moabites or any of those bites. Just go where I'm telling you to go and do what I'm telling you to do. Live like I'm telling you to live. And then the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Jebusites and the Kenites and all of those people will see and will want what you have and will come to me. And they won't know how to get to me, so they'll come to you. And you can tell them about me. And that's where we are right now. If we're looking at, and I'm hopeful, if we're looking at this really being near the end, then our job is not to get all chicken with your head cut off about it and not go trying to convince people that don't want to know about it. It's to live in a such, a, such a way that the, the neighbors you have, the people you work with, that you, you know, they will see things in you. They will hear things out of your mouth. They will see the comfort level you have with all the junk that's going on. And they'll say, well, aren't you worried? No, why would I be worried? This is the best news you could ever get. Oh, well, maybe not for you. <laughs> you know, you kind of have to be saved. But for me, this is awesome. That's how we're supposed to spend our time until he comes, right? Or until he takes us or whatever it is. Okay. Proverbs 25, 2. It says, it is to the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Well, Scripture has already told us that we are kings and priests. It's to our honor to search out the truth, to look at the things that are happening in the world and be able to say, oh, that was in the Bible. Did you know, Bill, that what these guys were saying came right out of the Bible? And of course, they'll look at you like you're a fool and you get the opportunity to explain it to them. And some will hear you and some won't. It's not up to you to make them believe. It's just up to you to be peaceful about the whole thing, to have an answer for those that ask, to know these things. And it's always been, you know, my sort of uh, lemon muffin in the craw thing that most Christians don't. They just, they don't. They don't have, they're in church, they tithe money. The donuts were good this morning. It's awesome. And they don't like to go any further than that. But if this really is approaching the time, it should be real. And that real would mean there are people at our church <laughs> that aren't going to go. They won't know what happened. That our neighbors, you know, we have people that we live near and work with that are clueless, that are lost, that are completely lost, that have been sucked up by all this that the enemy has said and done. And you're not going to get them all. You might not only get, you know, one or two. I don't know. But it's not our job to worry about that. That's the Spirit's job. That's the Lord's job. Our job is to live in such a way that they see something. 
that they see the comfort we have versus the junk that they see in the world. And right now the world is going nuts. You know, I mean, just forget for a minute, Minnesota and all the stuff that's going on there. But you think of every day you get experts telling you contradictory stuff. One day it's, oh, you're wearing a mask will make you sick. Oh no, you've got to wear a mask. Oh no, everybody's dying from COVID. Oh no, nobody's dying from COVID. You know, I mean, it, they don't even know what they're talking about. Right. So I'm going to... <laughs> yeah, the picture of original sin, and that's okay. Right. Or even care. Yeah. There's all kinds of that stuff. Well, and, you know, HR 6666, House Resolution Bill, it's like, really? You guys picked that? <laughs> or the, 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 the Gates thing, you know, his patent on this delivery system is uh, world order. So it's it's W O two O two O six O six O six no six O six O six O. And this is what I was saying last week. You have to remember that the Lord has already seen this. He's not prophesying things that will happen. He's telling you things that have happened. So when he says something like, oh, 666, you know, you got to watch that. It's not, he's, he's not prophesying that that number will come up. He's telling you that number's already come up. It's already the deal, you know, and uh, I don't know. Okay, so I want to just do a couple of more things to get you thinking for next week. Oh my gosh, I'm like about two hours behind her. I, okay. I'm sorry, I can't answer that in one minute. <laughs> um, yes, well, that's because they represent God. They represent Yahweh. And all these people hate Yahweh, but they can't get to him. So all they can do is get to his people. And his people are the Jews first, the Christians second. So we get the wrath from almost everybody about almost everything is my answer, I guess, if I had to give it in 30 seconds. Oh, sorry. Um, okay, well, let me read a couple things real quick. When, in, in, in the sense of, oh, there's so much good stuff here. Um, okay. Amos we did, Proverbs we did. All right, look, here in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 5, it's the genealogy of uh, the first 10 generations, right? You started with Adam who walked with God. You end up with Noah when everybody has got to be killed. Uh-oh. That's, <laughs> somebody's going to have to crawl under there and get that. Okay, so Adam walked with God. Noah, uh, the entire world was killed. You got to get it from this side, Kev. So how do you get from walking with God to God so mad he's going to destroy all the people? In 10 generations, you get there. Okay, so in, in that, and that's not today's message, but in that uh, group of 10 generations, the seventh one was Enoch. 
<laughs> you got to be here to see this. Okay, so it's amazing I can say anything. All right, so you've got Adam, Seth, all these guys, and then you get to Enoch, who's the seventh one. And the Bible tells you that uh, Enoch was not, for he walked with God and God took him. All right, so Enoch was raptured. Enoch is a picture of the church. Noah is a picture of the Jews. So the Jews went, Noah and the Jews went through the rapture. Enoch was, or I'm sorry, went through the tribulation. Enoch was apparently taken before the tribulation. Everybody else dies. Um, you get the same sort of picture, if you recall, with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the three children in the fire in the book of Daniel. Uh, you know them by some other names. I can't remember. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Those were not their names. You shouldn't even use those. Tanani, Mishael, and Ezra. Um, okay, so you remember the story, right? That Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, everybody's going to bow when the, you know, all the music plays. They couldn't do it because you can't, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't do that. You're following the Lord. Okay, they didn't do it. He says, really? You didn't do that? Well, then I'm going to throw you in the furnace. So be it. If, you know, throw me in the furnace, I don't care. Uh, you know, if the Lord wants me to live, he'll be there with us. If not, man, no big deal. He's still the Lord, right? That's exactly the attitude we should have. So Nebuchadnezzar is so incensed. You remember what he says? Heat the furnace up seven times. Okay, seven times, not three and a half times, not regular temperature, heat up seven times. Throws the kids in, they're fine, right? They go through the tribulation. Where's Daniel? He had been taken out previously. The king sent him on a mission. He wasn't there. He was, in effect, raptured. So um, Revelation chapter 3, we mentioned this. 1 through 3 talks about the church. Chapter 4 on, you don't read about the church anymore. Why not? Is the church still there? Apparently not, because you don't hear about them again. Um, in, a, in a Jewish wedding... The, the, and you, pr you probably know this, the rules are, you know, you get engaged and then the bridegroom leaves. He goes to build a house for the bride and he adds this house onto his father's house, right? So when the house is done and the father inspects it and thinks the time is right, then he says to the son to go get the bride. So the, the son goes to get the bride and all the people are waiting because they don't know the time or the hour. And when you read that verse, you know, you don't know the time or the hour. That's where it comes from. It's the wedding thing. It's not an end times deal. Um, and then he gets the bride, takes her home, and they spend how long? Seven days in, you know, doing what newlyweds do. Seven days. So that's, you know, that's always the picture. That's a picture in the book of Ruth. That's a picture of Rivka in Genesis 24. The father sends the spirit or the servant to find a Gentile bride for his son and bring her home, right? It's the same story. It's always the same story. So when you, uh, when you start looking at all this stuff, you kind of get the impression that Scripture is, is drawing a picture that there's something that happens. There's this, uh, this wedding feast where the bride is brought to the son and spends seven days 
with the son at the father's house before they come out to the guests of the wedding feast. And that's uh, kind of where you get, I mean, that's the rough two minute approximation of why you get a pre-tribulation rapture, because that picture is drawn 50 times or more in the Tanakh that just what I said, that the, the Gentile bride hooks up with the son of the father, moves to the father's house, spends seven days together, and then they all appear. Well, that's, that's exactly what a pre-tribulation rapture is. The people, the, 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 wet, the, the bride, us, if you believe yourself to be the bride of Yeshua, which hopefully you do, and kind of freaks me out as a guy, but that's kind of the way it works. We're the bride of Yeshua. Well, what happens? Well, this pre-tribulation rapture says the bride goes up to meet him in the air and does what? Spends seven days, seven years with him before they all come back down here for the, <laughs> for the wedding feast, right? For the, for the guests. And then there's a thousand years while the, the son is ruling and reigning and we're, you know, the bride, we're ruling and reigning with him. And who are we ruling and reigning over? People who don't believe. So it's not like, oh, this will be great fun. It'll be like, oh, okay, I have to go to Minnesota and defend the target? Oh, no. You know, but it's not going to be all, but that's the deal. And when you compare all that stuff, uh, to me, you get a, you know, a reasonable picture of a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, so I want to, I guess, maybe end, although we're not anywhere near the end. Oh, this is good. Okay, let me read Habakkuk real quick. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 5. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost that show me inequity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and they that raise strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and the judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceeds. Behold, ye among the heathen in regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though I told it to you. That's what's going to happen. Things have to be so bad, and the Lord's got a plan, and it's such a wild plan that even if he told you ahead of time, he wouldn't believe it. So think of yourself being shipped to Minnesota to guard some store and you're given a broom. That's the deal. And it's unbelievable. Nobody would do that. And yet he says, oh, it'll be fine. You'll be able to, 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 to fend off a thousand uh, Molotov cocktail wielding people with that broom. And you'll say, no, I can't. And, but you can. It's as though you couldn't believe it. Okay, so what is the purpose of the tribulation? The seven year, the, 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 the stuff we read in Revelation, the, between four and 18, all of that stuff, what is the purpose of all those bad things? Yes? By seeing disaster after disaster? Okay, you're right. That's excellent. Um, it's not really about punishment. 
In fact, it's not about punishment at all. The whole purpose of the tribulation is showing God's grace because he wants these people who will not believe to believe. And he's giving them this one more chance. And we just saw the people get raptured away. We just saw all this stuff happen. All these bad things are happening. You've got two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, Elijah, Jew and Gentile, telling you these things, giving you the testimony and the witness of God. We are no different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's God's grace, right? The purpose of the tribulation is not punishment. And the purpose of the rapture is not reward. It's not. We're just, it's, it's, it's all fitting in his plan to get the unsaved saved. Now, of course, all of the unsaved won't be saved, but some will. And it's interesting, you know, people uh, think, oh, it's, oh I get a second chance. You know, if I don't go in the rapture, I'll do it, you know, well... <laughs> If you can't live for him before the tribulation, it's unlikely you're going to live for him during. But some will. You know, they'll be beheaded for the testimony of, of Jesus or Christ or Yeshua or Yahweh or however you want to phrase it. And they will be saved. But just, just understand that if, if we are saved and go with him first, we're the bride. If they're saved later, they're the servants. They're serving. They're there, but they're not the bride. They are the guests. And no, and it would be way better than the alternative. But you don't necessarily want to be saved that way. You want to be saved first. So I guess all I'm saying is you may have six months. You may have a year. You may have 235 years. I don't know. But whatever time you have, A, make sure that you have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And whatever extent possible, make sure that your neighbors and friends and coworkers are at least given the chance to understand that they need to have that relationship with him. Right. Yeah, exactly. And he will allow that. <laughs> You know, you can come out of fear, but again, you'll be the guest and not the bride. So, okay, so we might have gone just a little over and I have tons left, but we'll pick it up next week. Mm -hmm.